0: Welcome back, I'm Carl Mack and this is Combat Chronicles, precisely episode 47 of Combat Chronicles. We'll be talking about in the main UFC 288. What about in the main? We're going to be talking about exclusively UFC 288, but in the main, the main event, which is Aljamain Sterling versus Henry Cejudo. And you may be wondering what my thoughts were going into this fight. You may be wondering where the podcast has been for nearly a whole month. Well, it's been over on the Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Combat Chronicles content over there comes I wouldn't say thick and fast but semi-regularly and the podcast follow the format much uh, as these ones do so uh, it's basically no intro no ads but the same sort of format same amount of fights discussed um, still boxing MMA kickboxing if you like these episodes, be sure to check out the Patreon as well. Uh, but on that Patreon, well, I did my uh, preview for Aljamain Sterling and Henry Cejudo. Essentially, I didn't know how it was going to go um, due to the the unknowns, what's it, what Cejudo was going to look like, etc. Um, and I think that sort of played out in the fight because it ended up being, and I would say usually it's a bad kickboxing match, but this was a weird, uh, janky mixed martial arts bout, essentially, uh, in terms of the striking, and it was... Uh, mainly a striking belt so let's get into it uh sterling winner by split decision elephant in the room i think aljomaine sterling did deserve to win it if you're looking at how them scorecards uh, were actually tallied though and henry sujudo would have won the title and the belt if the fifth round had been scored his way unanimously and it wasn't um i think that's obviously the, the massive problem here the rest of the rounds, uh, in here and there, maybe not, but they're all competitive and relatively sort of low output in terms of scoring uh stuff. So obviously going to get into that as we go through the analysis. But I think mainly the the fight is a, is a story of failings on Henry Cejudo's part to not be able to beat Aljamain Sterling when Aljamain Sterling's primary. Uh, form of offense and primary style was essentially taken away of him by how good Henry Cejudo is at what he does. So let's get into it. Uh, Aljamain Sterling, I've said many times before on this podcast, he's janky, he's weird, he is effective, but striking's not really his thing. Um, he's not particularly terrifying in terms of you know, sort of the heat he can bring on his punches, on his shots. Um, he's a good kicker. Uh, he is awkward in that regard. He is awkward all round really, he's just janky, got a bit of sort of uh, lower weight John Jones to him in a way, uh, the way he attacks with sort of unorthodox techniques, oblique kicks, you know, spinning attacks when he sees the opportunity for him. Uh Not really a functional jab despite his range, not really a great boxer by any means, as I say, janky, weird, and usually due to the threat of being taken down, that's enough to get people to have second thoughts about attacking him, but... In this fight, Henry Cejudo didn't really have that uh, as an issue um, because, obviously, he's a fantastic wrestler in his own right. And one thing I will say in terms of Henry Cejudo coming back is that he appeared very, very sharp athletically. Um, Kick catching was great. Uh, take down defense was as you'd expect great and very well equipped to deal with algermain Sterling's preferred method attack being back takes back uh, triangles that sort of thing so you know attacking legs attacking posts doing whatever he can to um not give Aljo that attempt to get on his back because he knows look aljo if you're going to try and finish me. Without getting your hooks in, it's going to be very easy for me to turn India uh, and get out of this position. And basically, I'm just not going to allow you to get that back triangle. He's probably seen other fights of Aljo's where you know the back triangle was, yes, certainly not conducive to winning rounds. But essentially, look, do you know what? I'll give up any attempts for you to attack my neck uh, or, or strike because paramount to surviving or being in the rounds enough to win them is to not allow you to take my back. So. You know, staved off the back take and therefore was basically willing to let Aljo do whatever um, in his pursuit of that. So, Cejudo was very well drilled, very well prepared um, to avoid that. So, how did he still lose? If Aljamain Sterling was not able to do what he wanted to do, how did he still beat Henry Sahudo? And not just in terms of scorecards, but... Why was it that Henry Cejudo was not able to do what he needed to do to win rounds consistently or win or have enough moments in rounds to win successfully? And I do think uh, 1, 2, three, and 4 are all... I don't think there were any clear-cut rounds in those first four rounds. I really do think, you know, there's moments where you think Aljo's kicking's got the better of it or and if we're talking about adjustments needing to be made, Aljo Sterling's ability to adjust into, OK, I can't uh, take you down, but... I can use the body lock pressure against the cage. I can then use that to to leverage that to knees and the clinch. Really good work from Aljamain Sterling to do that. Um, but I thought they were all pretty close nip and tuck rounds. Do think Aljamain Sterling got the better of it? But why was that? Because essentially he doesn't really pose much of a threat. His uh his defensive work is essentially move backwards or laterally laterally skirt skirt around the perimeter and get you to follow him get you to chase him and that is essentially the crux of the problem a lot of following from Cejudo, a lot of languishing uh, at range struggles with Al length I wouldn't say it's reach because as I say in terms of functional kicking not a lot of teeps not a lot of straight attacks it's just sort of uh, middle kicks low kicks and sort of flapping punches. Yes, certainly there's a degree of awkwardness that Sohudo didn't really get a read on early. But I do think that's also to do with not cage rush, so to speak, because I say athletically he appeared to be on point in terms of his timing and what have you. But certainly in terms of uh, a couple of things. In terms of dealing with that reach, Sohudo did make adjustments to go, right, okay, I'll punch off of uh, clinch breaks. So when we get into a tangle, I'll punch off then. If I can't get close enough to sort of consistently land uh, through his uh, additional uh, length, then when we do get in those, I will punch out those clinch breaks. Nice work. Adjusted later on as well, intercepting knees in the the later rounds uh, as well, and and try to use those. But essentially, Suhuda did make that adjustment. But why didn't he get close to Sterling enough? And I think if we look at the fight, the crux of it is in that fifth round. suddenly it's not, I'm following you around. Suddenly it's not, I'm fainting at mid-range, not certain of what you're doing, allowing you to kick me and then reset, spin off, and then reset the motion of me trying to close you down. Sterling was very easily able to get to where he wanted to be, which is well away from Cejudo, whenever he wanted to. So he's already got the added advantage of the reach and length, and then he hasn't got Cejudo on his ass as much as he needed to. In that fifth round, we see Cerrudo's route to success. Upon closing him down, not allowing him to just put his hands out there, actually hand fighting, cutting him off with low kicks, um, working his way in the range with feints and throwaways to allow Aljo uh, to not allow Aljo uh, a direct exit, to actually move him and herd him where he wanted to move him into, in order to try and land that overhand right. Also as wow, actually in that fifth round, using uh, going upstairs, downstairs to use uh, body shots, to try and close off Aldermaine Sterling's exit route. Perfect stuff. Needed to do more of that. And I think really the the main issue was that Cejudo, it's not just uh, a degree of awkwardness with Sterling because he is an awkward operator. Um, usually that awkwardness is sort of accentuated by people being worried about being taken down and actually in this fight that wasn't a major issue for Sudo. and even if it was he's such great get up ability and such a great defensive wrestler that it wasn't really a major concern for him as I say he had the the uh, back mount uh, scouted out perfectly but I think Sudo just wasn't really able to weaponise his durability a long time out probably wanted to feel himself in the cage get used to it but on that fifth round there's that call for Mexican style which I hate because such broad strokes but I get it um which essentially is, we need you to pressure more. And it was obviously apparent to them that he wasn't pressuring enough. And actually, in the one thing I said in the uh, preview was, you know, Cejudo, I would say, sort of striking-wise, is anti-stylist, really. Um, we've seen him sort of get mesmerised by, say, DJ in their rematch and sort of match his output. And actually what he needs to do is be a... Efficient pressure fire We see him barrel In the TJ We see him absorb Everything Marlon Marais got And walk him down And weaponise his Durability And just give him A pacing essentially So if you're not Scared of Marlon Marais Who was one of the Most dynamic strikers Pound for pound At the time really And was giving Cejudo a right Clattering Then why are you Concerned about Breaching into Jermaine Sterling's Space And I think it's Just got to be Due to Time out of the cage, feeling himself, trying to find his comfort level in the fight seemed pretty confident early, you know, with the say with kick catching and timing, uh, and essentially, you know, not being able to be grappled by Sterling. Don't think that was an issue, just that front foot pressure was not there until way too late in the fight. So that's part one of what Zahudo didn't do well. Second part, not really doing enough with uh, good grappling positions. Got that front headlock more than once. Um, there seems to be no submission threat there. Zahudo probably didn't feel it was there, but not enough striking. You know, at the end of the day, if you think if you strike, then you'll give up one of those hand positions and Sterling to get up. If you're not going to do anything with it, you might as well, because in that scramble, uh, as I say, on that break, you might be able to land something. There were times where Zahudo would sort of land pity patty punches. You've got to do something to score. Just a couple more of them, and you make those rounds that Sterling wins earlier closer, or you you know you completely flip them and win that um There was sort of no attempt to use that front headlock to try and get to the back, really. Uh, and get to a more advantageous position where you could strike more. I think Cejudo really needs to uh, utilise those positions better or just use them to get out quickly, return to a striking position, as I say, retain that pressure because he got embroiled in a sort of Aljo-ish kind of fight here uh, in those fights where we don't see Aljo dominate uh, via his grappling. You know, just sort of uh, relatively low output, certainly low accuracy sort of striking bout and really Cejudo was in a better position than anyone because he's just got less of an issue with the grappling and we know how durable he is. So I think he'll watch that fifth round back and think, shit, if I'd done that in the fourth round, uh, then by the time the fifth round come round, Aljo might be in blind a bit harder and I might have got to him. And I think basically it's all a case of confidence and I think it's just a case of just getting a little bit more sharp with the timing because this was a really nip and tuck fight. I think Aljamain Sterling deserved the win. I think it just his kicks generally were the more uh, the shots that just punctuated the rounds more. There was just more more of them. Could I say anything other than more? They 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 were a frequent uh, standout in the five minute stanzas. Um, so I think you know essentially I think that's why Aljo just about got the win. But in terms of you know, looking out at the round scoring and seeing what Henry Sudo looked like after three years out against a guy who we know is the best bantamweight in the world and has put on uh, far more proficient displays against, uh, not better than Henry Sudo, but I'll say more dynamic uh, offensive fighters than Sudo, such as Piotr Yan and knowing as well what Jan did in those championship rounds in the second fight, even after having significantly worse spells in the rounds, then Henry Cejudo, I think Cejudo will be kicking himself, I think Cejudo will feel that this was definitely a winnable fight, and I think that, it's not like the Volkanovski-Makachev fight, where you go, do you know what, Makachev deserved to win, but Volk showed a lot about himself in that fight, how Makachev won was not how we thought he would win, it's not really like that, um, because I think Makachev could have deservedly won that fight, Um, whereas Volk really probably didn't, it was probably a clear 3-2, Whereas in this fight, Henry Zudo probably could have done because these rounds are sort of so sort of iffy and not a huge amount happening. Sort uh, of Soudo would half lamb punches and, and Aljo's and Aljo sort of kicking him, but they are caught cool, and then Soudo's dumping him on his ass. You know, um, the takedowns don't go anywhere. I would hate to think that they contributed to the uh, the judges' assessments of the rounds in any way, shape or form. So uh, I don't know, man. I feel like. Volkanovski done so much for himself in that in that Makachev fight um, to, to continue with that comparison, just to show what skills he had. And Makachev had to show other skills to beat him. Um, but in this one, I feel like Cejudo just could have done more. I don't think Volkanovski could have really done more in that fight. He'd done brilliantly. Um, I think Cejudo was sort of let down by his lack of activity, lack of front foot pressure, and just a lack of decisiveness and how to approach, how to pressure Aljamain Sterling could it be that he just figured him out as the fight went on could it just be uh that he did just get too many awkward reads early um because I would say oh wow, he struggled with the jab the reach he struggled with the kicks he struggled with the unorthodoxy but really most of Aljamain Sterling's attacks Sohudo picked up on pretty quickly and was able to counteract them pretty quickly and the best bulk of what uh Sterling's skill set brings to the bout Cejudo cancelled it out uh, relatively easily. So it does seem to be failings on Cejudo's part. But as I say, that's not taking take anything away from Aljamain Sterling. Very much the case of you know his adjustment to go, do you know what, I can still win a fight like this. You are taking away what's best about my skill set, but I can still win a fight like this. Um, I can adjust. I have got an extra dimension to my game. I thought that was brilliant. And I think it's worth saying that I think it's fantastic that Aljamain Sterling is the weight champion the deepest division in MMA and it's essentially a bit of an old-fashioned stylist, a uh, big of an old-fashioned specialist, really, that's winning. I'm sure people will say, oh, come on, man, he's a mixed martial artist. But I'm just saying in terms of the thing like a mixed martial artist is somebody who's sort of, you know, good in all components of the game. And I don't really think Aljamain Stern is a very good striker. I think janky and, and somewhat effective and awkward is great. I'm into awkward stylists, always have been. But I think if you look at it, he is very much a specialist um, I wouldn't say his striking's even on the level of someone like Khabib or Isan Makachev, and they're grappling specialists too. So I think, I hope you can see where I'm coming from in my assessment. It's not meant to dig Aljamain Sterling, it's actually meant as a positive. But the other comparison I've seen this week is really Sahudo versus Aljo versus GSP versus Bisbin. Uh, and I think people sort of said, wow, he well, looked. When GSP came back, he won the belt. And it's like, well. I think Bisping was better overall at MMA than Aljamain Sterling is in terms of what his style is. Obviously, in he was really a bit of a jackal trades master of none. Aljo is a master of one and you know somewhat of a jack of other trades. But Aljo's in his prime. Bisping was not. GSP chose Bispin because he thought he could win the belt. So Hudo come back and fought the absolute number one. In terms of lineage, Bisping was number one, but there's very much some better middleweights around at the time. I don't think that's the case, at Bantamweight. I think Aljamain Sterling has proven himself the best Bantamweight in the world uh, in spite of the uh, sort of inadequacies I see with his style. Hey, he knows who he is and he's fucking good at it. And he's beating a wide range of stylists now, as his record shows. So you don't get to be the number one in UFC uh, at 135 without actually being elite. And he is absolutely elite. I've seen people disputing that this week. Um, don't get it at all. Having a nip and tuck bout, essentially, with a top five pound-for-pounder is more impressive than what GSP did against Bispin. However... However, and that's not a dig Bispin, brilliant career and and justified champion at the time. However, the reason this is an interesting one is not about the case-for-case comparison about what win was better, but a case-for-case comparison of what GSP did to Bispin, which was... 'm getting I'm having some issues here he's marking me up there are certain issues I'm having at range I have to throw the kitchen sink at him I have to leverage my superior gifts in time and accuracy to fucking hurt this guy and so who that out too late and I think that's the difference in the comparing the two fights in terms of fighters who took um, a couple of years out came straight back into a title fight one of which won one of which didn't. Um I think it's about the approach and I think you know Sohudo will be kicking himself and I think he'll be wishing that he'd stepped on the gas a little bit earlier. It's not just a case of, oh yeah, just walk forward and throw more punches, mate. It's the stuff he was doing in that fifth round, that front foot pressure, giving uh Aljamain Sterling more to think about, changing levels, etc. This is stuff which is quantifiable in terms of the tape. And I don't think there should be any sort of debate whatsoever as to uh what Sohudo needed to do to win this fight. It's, again, not to take anything away from Algermain Sterling. The fact he was able to win a close fight against someone as good as Henry Cejudo is just uh, another notch on his bedpost, really. He really is fucking excellent. Let's take a little commercial break now. And again, you don't get those over on the Patreon, but you have to put up with him now before we look at some of the highlights from the rest of the card. Planning for your next trip? Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash acast and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Actually, let's not go to the rest of the card. Let's first address the what does Henry Sohudo do next rumors. Um, because the idea maybe he was going to retire, but he, he get an instant rematch? And it looks like he wants to fight later on year UFC in Boston, and he wants to fight Mirab Devalishvili. So for me, that's a perfect fight. Mirab, I think it's said on this podcast before, essentially is running a uh, sort of old school enforcer role where you've got to beat him to get a title shot because he's not going to fight his good mate Aljo. Um, used to be used by promoters back in the day to sort of uh, stop someone they didn't want to get a fight Who might dethrone their guy, uh, getting the fight someone of a similar ilk or someone trickier that could beat him Before he got to the title fight um, In this instance, Mirav's basically like, sort of, your, your name's not down mate, you're not coming in Sort of role to stop them getting to his mate in the VIP lounge, like the bouncer So I think it's a great fight. The uh, the unstoppable wrestler versus the unwrestlable. Um And, you know, Mirab's just constant engine versus Cejudo's apparent want to uh, sort of find his spots and find his time. And I think it's a great fight. Mirab's a tank at 135. I think Cejudo could probably still make 125 if he really wanted to, although that might have been because he's fighting one of the largest 135s I've ever seen. And that Jermaine Sterling, who's sort of as broad as he is long. And, uh, yeah, I think Mirab versus Henry Cejudo is an absolutely perfect fight. Because if Henry wins, built-in narrative for a rematch, um, there's obviously a logjam at 1.35. Aljo can fight someone in the meantime. Um, and if Mirab wins, then Aljo will almost certainly move up and uh, Mirab de Vils-Falli will fight for the vacant title. It appears, if we're talking about what's Aljo doing next, um, as we saw when Mirab stole his jacket, um, Sean Michael Jackson, Malley is going to be fighting Aljamain Sterling. I'm absolutely fine with that, um, you know, Grappling-wise, it should be a wash, but in terms of length, striking, uh, jankiness, precision... uh, Sorry, let's start again. Length and jankiness and and, uh, sort of weird uh, dimensions, O'Malley's got Aljamain Sterling beat. In terms of his striking, his precision, his overall arsenal, uh, how dangerous he is and how volatile it is to fight the guy, I think O'Malley's got Aljamain Sterling beat. So it's very much uh, sort of specialist versus specialist, really. Um where if Aljo can not sort of get to where he needs to, he could be in serious fucking trouble because he ain't going to sort of out-jank O'Malley um, and where it sort of Aljamain could to speed run him like he did Corey Sandhagen. So anyone saying they're not interested, I think you're wrong. Uh, and I think uh, O'Malley sort of is as deserving sort of as anyone at 135 based on his recent fight with uh, Pyot Yan And uh, yeah, I mean, has he jumped the queue? Yes, he has. But he's somewhat marketable. And it's only good for Al Jermaine's legacy if he gets more eyes on his fights because he's not the most exciting guy to watch sometimes. To the layman, I think speed running Corey Sanhagen was really fucking exciting. But I think most people would rather see uh, sort of knockdown, down, drag out wars of which the kind he is really in. So... I think Aljamain Stern versus Sean O'Malley get a lot of eyes on it. Sean O'Malley's rated by the casual. If Aljo can beat him, it's only going to uh, have the casuals realise how good he is, which can therefore leverage in the you know marketability, profitability, etc., etc. As I say, if he could beat O'Malley and Suhudo uh, could beat Mirab, then fucking hell, the rematch is absolutely huge, isn't it? Um, one last thing on the fight, by the way, didn't think it was particularly great. Cerruto versus Sterling. It was fine. The grappling exchange is really interesting to watch as you sort of, will they, won't they? How's this going to play out? Um, but yeah, generally, I found it quite a tepid affair. Now on to the rest of the card. And speaking of tepid affairs, Bilal Muhammad versus Gilbert Burns. The uh, storylines coming after the fight are somewhat uh, more interesting than the fight itself. Drafted in to replace the lost co-main event of uh, Charles Oliveira versus Benil Darius, which would have been... Just a fantastic second part of this podcast, wouldn't it? My God, I'm um, sure there'll be loads to talk about it in that, regardless of how it went down. Um, drafted in late, five-round co-main event, essentially. Uh, a. I think, well, we'll talk about it, but I think most people would have assumed going in that it was a kind of like de facto welterweight eliminator. I think based on the aftermath, it might not be, and it's really unfair because... These guys took the fight late. Notice Gilbert Burns appeared to have an arm injury. Bilal Muhammad definitely had an ankle injury. Bilal... The fight's not that interesting to talk about. Bilal pissed it, essentially. Um, Just sort of spamming middle and eye kicks at Gilbert Burns. It's damaged arm. Not really much to talk about. Um yeah not much of no grappling exchanges uh burns sort of tried to adjust and shift into a uh, southpaw stance to land a short right hook and over and over again that didn't really work either couldn't really get much going uh mid-range his uh boxing which has got so much stronger in in recent years and definitely in recent fights was basically an on entity and where he usually gets his uh, bread and butter in terms of uh uh grinding top grappling and just pulverising you into meat didn't really happen either so below mohammed worthy winner um fairly one-sided stuff uh for the main part and uh yeah i think it's pretty obvious that both men were impaired um guilt burns probably more so but turns out afterwards that mohammed was really badly impaired on the ankle as well so i'm not gonna say oh well burns was injured so it doesn't matter no Bala Mohamed won, one fair and square. Just wonder whether we could have done something else. We didn't really need to see that uh, so quickly. It seems to me that UFC just sort of went, oh, fuck it. We need a co-main event, chuck them in. I mean, they, they're giving us worse. Was there any need to sort of put these guys' health at risk? Uh, two of your top five fighters in a division that's relatively barren. However, uh, you would think saving the card to some extent and... Uh, Winning clearly against a top five fighter I would put Bilal Mohammed in line for a title shot. But I do wonder uh, now he's shown his hand in terms of being injured whether the UFC will punish him for that. And sort of, you made us look bad, you made us look like horrible, slimy bosses. Um, you don't get a title shot now, or you've got to fight Shemaev or fucking Shavkat Rakhmanov to get one. Uh, just give fucking Bilal Mohammed a title shot now. It's pretty clear that. He deserves one. Uh, him and Leon Edwards have fought before, so he might as well. Uh, and either way, you get it done. So, yeah. Uh, fucking hell, man. I just feel like feel bad for both these guys, especially because you know neither of them are all that young, certainly not Gilbert Burns. Um, and, yeah, you know, two grindy fellas who have grinded their way to the top um, essentially been thrown into the meat grinder in this fight where it just didn't really feel that great to watch and it felt like both men weren't really operating it. Top capacity, and unfortunately, afterwards, that the main narrative is oh, Bala Mohammed's always fucking boring. Like, we didn't see him look way better against Sean Brady, so give him a bit of respect. I um, was not my favorite fighter by any means, but this run he's on really impressive and uh, fair pay to him for winning. Uh, pretty one sided fashion, in my opinion, even though it wasn't all that interesting or dynamic to watch from a stylistic standpoint. Talk all about weaponizing durability. I don't think Jessica Andrade is going to do that much longer. She got fucking chinned. Uh, Moffsar Avlojev versus Dio Lopez is very interesting because we've been waiting for now for Avlojev versus Bryce Mitchell for a while I think he's fallen out of bed a couple of times fell out of bed at late notice this time just waiting for Avlojev to actually get someone in the sort of top 10 you know he's in there but I think like you know his skill set um, it's not been met by his uh, his competition at this stage and Bryce Mitchell would have been a good one for that uh, Bryce Mitchell got some skill nowadays as a sort of straight punching sort of counter puncher uh, range kind of puncher, but well known for his uh, his grappling. It would have been interesting to see if Loyev, who's also known for his top grappling, take on someone like Bryce Mitchell. Well, got chucked Diego Lopez at late notice, uh, who trains with uh, Alex Grasso, and uh, you know just some random Mexican bollocks. looks. looks at his record, he's lost in every conceivable way you can think of. He's been knocked out, tapped, and uh, lost by decision as well. Hadn't seen any of his prior fights. Apparently, he's been on Contender Series uh for acb or something like that at some point as well but um i just haven't seen any of his uh his previous fights so yeah i wasn't really too excited for the fight and uh just thought well you know if Lake late notice at least he's fighting squash match whatever totally opposite of that really fucking fun really fucking scrambly. Diego lopez is really fucking fun um absolute brawler throwing heat on the feet and on the floor, great hips, always fucking attacking submissions. I felt like I was watching a fight from 2013 for some reason. I felt like something from one of those Fox cards, just absolute carnage. Uh, maybe it's because he looks a bit like Eric Silver and fights a bit like a smaller Eric Silver as well. But, yeah, absolute fucking bedlam from start to finish. Um, even at the death, when he would had his fucking head punched in, Lopez is still trying to tap um, Ivloyev. Ivloyev who's a really safe and patient top grappler, got caught in loads, triangles, arm bars, got caught with the, uh, the famous uh, Sakuraba Kimura trick, Um, you know, wh- wherever he was, he was not safe, there are points where, you're like, oh, he's nowhere near someone there, and then, next thing you know, he's being turned over, he's in a fucking arm bar, or he's in a knee bar, uh, having one of his limbs wrenched from his body, so, really brutal, difference was that Lopez was essentially a brawler on the feet, and, uh, an opportunist on the ground, whereas Havloyev actually had a process, Um, especially from the second round onwards. He'd double jab his way in, he'd throw a ways to set up the right hand, he'd double up on the right hand, switch a southpaw to get closer with the right hand, and then pop one off there. And on the ground, just methodical, trying to control the wrist, working his way in with ground and pound, really managed to stack Lopez at points and rain down some really heavy blows on him. The first round I thought was Lopez's... um, Also, they have some random fucking people, as if the commentary isn't bad enough at, um, what's the best way to put this, the commentary isn't bad enough at putting out a false narrative about how fights are meant to be scored and what we're watching on fights, they have some random fucking people popping up, you know, random Twitter people popping up because they've paid for a blue tick, it used to be because they had a blue tick. But it's always the same people, most of which, you know, you wouldn't want to talk to. If you listen to this podcast, you don't want to talk to those people. Do you know what I mean? Some guy came up this time and said, yeah, Lopez had some big moments in round one, but uh, Avloy have had so much control time. Um, two things. A, control time. No, three things. A, control time is not really part of the scoring. Not when there's so much scoring uh, work going on in that round, which there was. People getting their fucking heads punched in and nearly getting their arms ripped off. That's what you score on before the control time. Secondly, if Lloyd have done scoring work in that round, why not mention that? Why not mention the ground and pound? Why not mention the striking upstairs? Why not mention that? Uh, and thirdly, how much control time is it if you're constantly on the fucking danger of being swept or putting submissions? Control time, mate. Are you that fucking stupid? I'd never heard of the cunt before, to be honest with you, so I can't remember his name now, but you do see a lot of people on there that you do recognise from Twitter, Um, some obviously better than others. Um, Shout-out to my man, Dan Tom. He's been on there a few times before. I didn't see him on this card, but you know, one of the smartest minds going. But mainly it's people where you go, I don't fucking want to talk to these people about fighting, they ain't got a fucking Scooby. So you've got them coming out of equally fucking stupid opinions. How are fans supposed to get more well-educated if you've got the commentary telling them a load of shit and then you're essentially signing off on these social media opinions that are also talking absolute shit what isn't absolute shit was the fight which was fantastic will almost certainly be uh, on the shortlist for fight of the year at the end of the year and Avoyev in a way did answer some questions that we would hope that Bryce Mitchell would have raised, you know. He's fucking really tough. He can get out of bad grappling situations. He does have a process on the feet to circumnavigate a dangerous striker. I mean, L- Lopez is a fucking brawler. He's the opposite of what Mitchell was uh, worked his way into as a striker, um, which is sort of patient, punch-picking, sort of counter punchy. He's not great here, but I think he does pretty well, as evidenced in the Edson-Barboza fight. Lopez is just fucking gunslinging, uh, standing up and on the ground. Great to watch, Um, and Devloyev worked his way through it, went through the process, was patient, was calm, um, and you know, didn't lose his temper, didn't lose his focus. And because of that, he survived even that knee bar attempt at the end. So, I thought he was a 29 28 winner. You could sort of make a case for the third round, in my opinion. Well, before went off on this tangent, I was saying Lopez won round one, in my opinion. Evloev won round two, and I think you could make a case for Lopez to win round three because, even though there was some really vicious striking going on, uh, which is sort of the main sort of criteria, he was really doing damage and getting close with his submission attempt. So, I think there, you know, it's the it's the it's the Kimura trap and the knee bar at the end. Dependent on where you see them in terms of the criteria. Yes, the, the striking is the main thing, but there was they were clearly really damaging submission attempts and they were relatively close. You could somehow see that round from in my opinion. I don't. I still go with uh, vloyev's uh, striking on the feet and on, on the ground of pound. I thought he'd done a lot of that um, and there's only really two moments for, for Lopez. But colour me interested in Lopez. I do want to see him again. Throw him in fun fights. Same for Mexico cards, whatever. Um, you know, he's clearly gonna be in some fun scraps. He's not gonna be a world beater. Haven't seen him any of his other fights. This is one of the rare times where I'll go, yeah, I looked at his topology and I watched this fight, and that's basically all I need to know. He's only 28, so he could still get better, but based on what I can see of how his career has played out up to this point, and based on this fight. I know one thing, regardless of how he gets on in his career, he's gonna be fun. So let's keep him let's have him stick around. Let's get him in some fun fights of which at one forty five there'll be plenty. And uh yeah, just fucking let the violence commence. That was a really fucking fun performance and a really bloody good fight. If you haven't checked that one out, make sure you do. Only thing I'm gonna say, uh, Cron Gracie is cut him. No time for it, no time to talk about a fight and uh Jordan deserves better. There's a fun fighter who doesn't deserve to be uh fighting a butt-scooter. So, yeah, no interest in talking about that whatsoever. Um, just taking the Gracies back 10 years or, you know, whatever. really uh, that good in modern MMA? No, but I would have expected after so much time off for, for Cron Gracie to actually add something to his game is fucking just terrible. So, no. No, thank you. But if we go back to that great fight, the, the lopez uh, lawyer fight, the one that I thought was going to be great was Drew Dober versus Matt Frivola. And it was, to an extent. Didn't quite go out as I was expecting it to, and uh, let's see why. Matt Frivola, of course, fighting out the Saro Longo camp, and they had Drew Dober, well, scouted in my opinion. Uh, Frivola made sure that always attacks were uh, on his own right side to ensure that Drew Dober was always moving over to his own right. Dober loves to uh, launch you with a jab and then uh, pop you with the backhand off of that. So Frivola always getting Drew Dober to move across meant he couldn't establish his jab. When they were still or when Frivola was moving to his own left and Dober was able to track him moving to his right, that's when Dober was clearly having the more success. When they were stood still, but uh, Frivola was able to attack him uh, on Dober's uh, left-hand side and get him to move across, essentially Frivola wasn't in the danger zone. But what he did have to do was... Uh, show really good timing and and poison those exchanges because you know you don't really want to get into extended exchanges with Drew Dober. So what Frivola did was just mix up his approach. It would be high kicks, it would be uh, that wide right hand. If you throw the straight with Drew Dober, he's going to be able to get there as you are. Uh, Obviously, usually, if you go wide and the person goes straight, they're going to land on you. But I think, from what I can see, because he landed that right hand uh, twice, uh, Frivola... He was going so wide. I think it was going outside of Drew Dober's eye line because he was so focused on uh, on straight attacks. And it looks like it just went round and he just didn't see it coming. Uh, first time, uh, it was just a, a good shot, well set up. Second time, as Dober was looking to exchange coming forward, bopped him coming in, wiped him out, finished with ground and pound. What's great about Drew Dober is, and I don't know if the wars will catch up with him, he's been trading on his chin for a long time. He's one of the best action fighters in the sport. This might be the start of his downfall, but dropped by a big hitter, pulverised on the ground, face full of claret, still gets up, wants to carry on. Dizzy, uh, not with it, but Dober is just an absolute warlord, basically. And Frivola took him out. So I think Matt Frivola basically gave himself the best chance of winning, um, not getting in prolonged exchanges with Drew Dober, and not allowing Dober to jab his way in constantly by constantly forcing Dober over to his own right. I just think that... He wasn't able to establish a jab enough. And really, it's the craft of Drew Dober. It really is. You know. You can get an exchange with him, but you'll see. Especially like you know, you see the Bobby Green fight or whatever. It's his craft. He will catch you in exchanges. He will set you up with feints, throwaways, rhythm changes, etc. And for Vola, by being janky and awkward, constantly causing Drew Dober to reset, really. That's the easiest way to put it. Um, not allowing him to build a rhythm by varying his attacks um, in terms of uh, what he was throwing at him. But as I say, focusing on uh, Drew Dober's left side, causing him, uh, forcing him to move over to his right-hand side, don't think Dober was really able to uh, get it going as much as he would have liked to. So usually with a southpaw, you think, I'll keep my foot on the outside. But essentially by not following him, Provola was keeping himself out of the danger zone. Whenever he did move to his own left and Dober was able to track him, you saw that he looked sort of out of sorts, quite uh janky, dis uh unorganised. But as I say, if you can hit Dober big shots, keep him moving across. I think you can keep yourself out of the danger zone and poise wise thought Matt Provola did a really good job of getting big shots off and limiting the amount of times he was stood in front of Drew Dober. But Yeah, I think to think that was like a Hail Mary or a one-off or a fluke is absolutely incorrect. He was landing big shots, whether it was the right high kick, the right Superman punch, the right hook. All them shots were landing for Favola throughout that round. So clearly they had him uh, marked up. Uh, They knew exactly what they were going to hit him with and they gave himself the best chance of doing it. And yeah, obviously, you know, right hand shot is the best shot typically against a Southpaw if you can get your uh, foot on the outside. But... Yeah, Frivola pulled it off, banged Dober out, and it was fun in those couple of minutes. I thought we were going to get more of an extended war, but generally I think that um, it was still fun enough, and even though I'm disappointed that Drew Dober lost, I think I would have been relatively disappointed whoever lost this fight. They're both really fun fighters, but those uh, Cerro Longo boys were like, fuck it, man, he's hit a ball. You can bang with a right hand. You you can get off good shots on him, and you know they rolled the dice They went to war and they got it done. You know, sometimes you put two bangers up against each other, two warmongers against each other, and this will happen. And I think it's just, obviously, for most people, it's surprising because Drew Doe has been on such a run. Um, He'll basically fight anyone. He was like, yeah, Matt Fravola, that sounds like a fun fight. Don't care that he's not above me in the rankings. I'll basically fight anyone. And his chin is essentially adamantium. I hope it is still after this fight, but he definitely took a pasting in this one. Um, but hopefully, you know his action fighter credentials are secured, and he still showed that in this fight by he didn't just go out like a light. He kept fucking trying, he kept scrambling, took a beating, faces smashed up. I'm sure once he's healed up, he'll still be a pretty handsome chap. But uh, yeah, Matt Fravola, man, he's awkward. He's he's dangerous. I don't think he's ever going to be a, a world beater. But you know, basically, you know that sort of next tier of lightweight, you've got all these sort of awkward, dangerous fellas about. Fucking chuck him in there. He's in the mix and just picked up, you know, really the best win of his career. And fuck me, that's a couple of dangerous bangers have been up uh, against in a row now. We thought that uh, Otman Azatar, the guy who's supposed to fight Paddy Pimbley, he looked like a bit of a puncher. And uh, yeah, fucking, hell, he he got fucking blammed as well. That's two first round knockouts in a right well three in a row, but two against really you know relatively dangerous guys. Dober uh, even more so. Um, I don't think I fucking watched the. I don't think I even remember Frivola's fight with Jalen Turner. Let me know in the comments uh, if you thought that he actually deserved to win or not, because I don't remember seeing it. Obviously, Turner's come on leaps and bounds since then anyway, but I really don't remember that fight. I don't remember how it looked. I can't recall it whatsoever. Um, But, yeah, fucking hell, man. I just think that Frivola really did target and hone in on those those, uh, attacks. And, you know, sometimes in, in a shootout, that's all that matters, you know, he knew what he was doing in there. And, you know, you see him sort of shuffle around for Vole. He looks like he's from, you know, 2008. But uh, he's fucking strong. It's really hard. And uh, Drew Dober, he loves these sort of fights. You don't get to come out of all of them unscathed, I'm afraid. And uh, just a really fucking good one. And, uh, yeah, didn't live up to the potential that I thought he was going to. It was a war. But you tell me, you know, hate to quote Russell Crowe, but were you not entertained? Um it was really fucking mind-blowing. In the sea, Drew Dober, one of the hardest blokes in MMA, get chinned in the first round. So, yeah, great fight. Uh, one last fight I'll talk about from the undercard uh, for the early prelims. Phil Hawes off to Bellator Hugo, although for some reason you'll probably get another opportunity. But uh, he fought Ikram Aliskarov, who most people will know for being blammed out by Kamzat Chemaev uh, pre-UFC. good fighter apparently got a lot of uh, credentials as, as a top-line uh, sambist. Um, l- liked him so far in MMA. Uh, I think he won the contender fight to get on. He was all over the shop in this fight, slipping all over the place, uh, and still uh, banged Phil Hawes out. He sort of fell over, stood up, and they just banged him out. So all the talk about some sort of uh, Khalil Roundtree-esque renaissance for Phil Hawes, sort of uh, targeting with the uh, rear-side body kicks and just trying to sort of walk Alistairov down was all for now, and he got uh, sort of uh tied elbowed, um, kneed, and then got laid out by a bloke who just fell over. So, um, yeah, see you later. No interest in him going forward, sorry to say. Aliskarov needs to tidy it up a bit, but still, he's got some credentials, and uh dummy many times got set at but 185 so so, uh, top-heavy, that uh, I'd be happy to see anyone who can bring some interest to the division. So, yeah, let's give him another go, and... Um, put it down to what first fight UFC jitters and whatnot or just the fact that Hawes was sort of out-athlete him and early um Elisgrove's clearly got something so yeah let's see him uh let's, let's let's see him again let's give him someone else you know 185's so sort of barren you can give him anyone the sort of top 15 I wouldn't really mind um sort of outside of top sort of five guys Um uh, so yeah interesting stuff That'll be it for this episode. If you want to hear my thoughts on Canelo versus John Ryder rising, mainly uh, Burkow versus uh, Ampo and uh, Demetrius Johnson rubber match with Adriano Morais and thoughts on the now official uh, Takeru signing and chat research dong talking absolute shit. Be sure to head over to the patron, www.patreon.com slash combat chronicles. That episode will be out tomorrow until the next free one on this feed, or until our next uh, see you over on that aforementioned Patreon feed, um, oft-mentioned Patreon feed. Hope you enjoyed this one. Peace out, and thanks as always for listening.